Rojbaş, this is the Kurdish edition podcast and I'm your host Sardar Saadi. Hello everyone, this is the ninth episode of the Kurdish edition. I had to take a long break from the last episode because of the heavy load of my schoolwork as I'm about to finish my PhD dissertation. Uh, I will try to have at least an episode every month and in the next episode uh, I'll have some announcements to make. This current episode is coming during uh, very difficult times for Kurds and their friends all around the world. As you may all know by now, on October 9th, uh, the Turkish military forces started a genocidal invasion campaign to Rojava, the northeastern parts of Syria. According to Rojavan sources and international human rights organizations, more than 300,000 people have so far been displaced and more than 200 civilians have been killed. Images and videos of mutilated and burned Kurdish bodies are all over Twitter. Some very troubling videos show uh, that the Turkish army have used chemical weapons in their bombardments of the city of Serekanye, Rasul Ayn. On October 17, uh, Turkey agreed to a 120 hours uh, long pause in its offensive after negotiating a ceasefire deal with the uh, US uh, Vice President Mike Pence and the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Today, uh, Turkey has made yet another agreement with Russia to plan joint uh, patrol uh, 10 kilometers deep into Rojava and Syria. It's not clear how these agreements will stand, but what is clear is that imperialist powers are continuing to gamble with the lives of Kurdish civilians and fighters. Kurdish homeland has become the sphere of a world war that no international power recognizes. Decisions about our cities, villages, farms, homes and livelihood are made in Ankara, Suchi and Washington by corrupt politicians and autocrats. Imperialist powers once again displayed their complete disregard uh, to human lives. But the question is what the Kurds uh, could have done differently in Rojava while being surrounded by barbaric forces, if not uh, cooperating with the coalition forces and especially the United States during the war against uh, the Islamic State, ISIS. How could the Kurds guarantee the right of their, pe- their people for self-determination and an alternative bright future for the people in the midst of war and turmoil that holds the entire region hostage for many years? 
In this episode, Rojavan imperialism, I talked to Justin Pudor about these questions and more background into the current situation. Justin Pudor is an associate professor of environmental studies at York University in Canada. He's a writer on political conflicts and social movements and has reported from numerous countries, including the Democratic Republic of Congo, Pakistan, Haiti, and Israel-Palestine. His most recent book is a novel titled uh, Siegebreakers. And in this book, Pudor tells the story of a group of people attempting to break the siege on Gaza, Palestine. Uh, Justin has his own podcast and it's called The Ossington Circle. And I will provide a link to, uh, to his blog where he uh, publishes his uh, podcast in the description of this episode on SoundCloud. Uh, for those of you who are interested to listen to uh, his other episodes. In the last couple of years, I was a guest on his podcast uh, to talk about Rojava. And we decided to make this uh, current episode actually a joint production between the Kurdish edition and the uh, Ossington Circle podcast. Uh, and I want to mention that this episode is the first of a series to discuss Rojava and imperialism. In uh, future episodes, I will talk to academics and politicians to expand our focus on this topic and delve deeper into uh, the question of what sort of anti-imperialist politics we should follow when it comes to Rojava and uh, more generally in today's world. Uh, so without further ado, here's my conversation with uh, Justin. Okay, so on my side, I'll say welcome to Sardar, uh, and welcome to all of you listening to the Ossington Circle. We're doing something a little different. I have Sardar Saadi here, uh, so he's got a podcast, the Kurdish edition, so I'm going to be a guest on that, and I've got this podcast, the Ossington Circle, and he's going to be a guest on that, and the trick is that it's actually the same podcast, the same recording. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, then we well thank you for having me. Yeah, <laughs> Just... likewise. Thank you for <laughs> And thanks me. for being on uh, this podcast, on the Kurdish edition. Yeah. yeah. I was actually looking forward for uh, having this uh, joint podcast because I have been on yours for yeah. twice. Yeah. And, uh, and the circumstances, the time is just uh, uh, different. I yeah. wish it was much better times and we could talk uh less about the daily events and yeah then... we can talk more academically big <laughs> picture but or maybe no. about your book cheese breaker congratulations thank you thank you yeah just uh, launched two weeks ago yeah we launched it at another story bookshop and siege breakers uh for your readers is, i mean for your listeners is a book uh about the siege of gaza so they're breaking yeah. the siege on gaza and uh you know there's um, there's a little bit about Syria. There's nothing. There's nothing Kurdish in it, unfortunately. Um, but uh, you know, uh, of course, the situation in Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, Egypt, Syria—they're all intertwined. Turkey uh, yeah. now, and so uh, you know, a piece of that region is definitely portrayed there. So maybe yeah. some of your listeners will find that of interest. So the book launch was on the fourth, yes. and. Uh, I guess on the 6th was when Trump made that announcement. Right. And on the 9th, yeah. Turkey started bombing 
northern Syria and displacing what over a hundred thousand people now well by today uh, the number has raised uh, to uh, three hundred thousand three hundred thousand uh, people displaced yes and a lot of uh, civilians uh, uh, have suffered uh, like a lot of injuries uh, a lot of death and they were like uh, some videos of uh, uh, mutilated bodies of the Kurds uh, and there was this uh, uh, politician, this woman politician, mm -hmm. uh, secretary of the future party, Syrian future party, Havrin Khalaf. She was uh, uh, brutally killed uh, on this highway, this international highway. Um, and uh, all the videos were uh, basically uh, put on internet by the jihadists and uh, and I heard that later uh, the Turkish army uh, basically uh, made this jihadist to uh, not publish anything else uh, uh, because it was clear evidence of war crimes. Uh, war crimes. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting phenomenon with the way war is conducted now, where troops like to create these trophies you know the Israelis do it I know the Sri Lankans did it in 2009 when they were taking over the Tamil areas uh, of northern Sri Lanka uh, from the Tigers that final phase of that counterinsurgency and and obviously Isis is famous for that the Islamic State is famous for this these trophy photos and videos but then um, when you're trying to put a responsible face on it like Turkey is that while simultaneously trying to unleash the maximum amount of terror on the population, it's this it's this weird balance that they have to keep that sometimes they lose track of. So then some right. of these videos and photos do get leaked. Yeah, and uh, there were like uh, photos and videos of uh, Turkish offensive in Afrin. So Maybe let's, let's... Uh, we should probably do a bit of background just because just in case. I mean, a lot of our listeners do know all these things, but it helps to put the story uh, in perspective. So um, going back, we could go back a year to when Turkey invaded Afrin, but we could go back uh, to 2014. There was a moment when Kobani was in the, you know, all over the news, and this is a town in uh, northern Syria uh, with a lot of, where a lot of Kurdish Syrian Kurds live. Uh, and it was under siege by the Islamic State. Right. And this was a moment, I think I interviewed you then or yeah. around then um, for the first time. And that this at this moment, um, it was less clear to everyone, although it was pretty yeah. clear to us, yeah. uh, that, the, that it was Turkey that was behind the Islamic State, that the right. Islamic State here is... You know, it's got Saudi ideology, yeah. it's got Saudi and Gulf money, uh, and it's got the logistical help and the facilitation across the border of Turkey. Mm -hmm. And so the these militias now, the Arab militias that you're hearing about in the news, they're in many cases the same people from the Islamic State, um, and they're facilitated in exactly the same way. Uh, so... Like when you think of these different offensives and these different attacks that uh, have gone on against 
you know, Syrian Kurdistan, if you want to use that term, um, they're always the same people. And it's always done in the same way. It's always been Turkey facilitating this, and it's always been Turkey um, putting these uh, Arab militias or whatever. I mean, they're not even... I mean, the Islamic State was not just Arab, right? It was a multinational kind of project. But um, it's always been Turkey that's been behind this. So just to... um, just to bring it to today, uh, so when Turkey attacked Afrin a year and a half ago, or the be- beginning of 2018, I guess. Yeah, it was January 2018. Uh, they, they, they never left, right? They, they have been occupying that part of uh, Syria <coughs> since then. And there's been an insurgency, basically, by the, the Kurdish forces there. They had to retreat. They couldn't kind of fight a pitched battle in Afrin, but they have been fighting since then. And uh, this is just on October 9th, I guess it's been an expansion of yeah. the Turkish military presence there. Yeah. So where did they expand to? I mean, um, uh, like going back to uh, what's going on in Syria, we could probably go back a little bit even before uh, Kobani uh, resistance in 2014. And uh, in 2012, uh, the attacks by Islamic Jihadists right. started against the Kurdish cantons. Mm-hmm. They were like that time, just three uh, small enclaves of Jizre uh, Canton, Kobani Canton and Afrin Canton. Right. And like many parts of Jizre Canton, including the, the, this very city that right now very intense uh, fightings are taking place and many civilians have died. Uh, the city of Serekaniye, uh, the Arabic name is Rasul Ain, uh, was liberated at that time from Jepetun Nusra. And uh, right now we have the same group, uh, or even uh, I could say uh, more radicalized uh, Islamic group that are backed by Turkey right. attacking uh, Serekaniye. So we have a full kind of uh, circle back, like yeah. things started from Serekaniye and right now we are back to Serekaniye. And then uh, after Kobani, uh, I, I would say that the coalition forces were uh, forced to by the public opinion, the, uh, the global outrage, uh, why people are not doing anything about Kobani. There are a group of people who are resisting uh, the Islamic State's uh, mm, uh, brutal attacks on c- different communities uh, in the Middle East region, why nobody is uh, doing anything. And despite uh, the original plan by the United States to arm uh, some of these uh, similar, uh, what they rebels. call moderate rebels, exactly, yeah. uh, they finally came to, um, uh, supply, to, to uh, supply weapons and uh, provide air the support uh, for the Kurdish uh, forces at that time, YPG and YPJ. And this ended up with uh, uh, liberating uh, Tel Abyad, Giresp, which was one of the main routes of supply for Islamic States, and then Manbij, and then, you know, Raqqa, Deir Azur. From when they were able to turn things around in 2014, the YPGJ actually expanded the territory under their control with help from the U.S., Right. I I think it was more than expanding territory. Uh, It was about uh, uh, 
uh, defeating ISIS yeah. in the areas that they had control. Right. So uh, in some areas, uh, I know that the Kurdish uh, administration uh, would uh, have wanted to uh, take the area in Jarablus and then connect Afrin mm -hmm. to the rest of uh, okay. the northeastern uh, Syrian ad this autonomous administration. Uh, but they stopped at some point after Turkish invasion of uh, that area right. uh, called Shahba. Uh, so it was more than the territory. But at some point, I guess uh, they also uh, followed what uh, the U.S. plan was to take all the area east of Euphrat uh, uh, River yeah. uh, and uh, even at some point to go beyond Euphrat uh, yeah. and uh, like for some strategic points like the Razor, like the Tashrin, mm -hmm. them and then Abu Kamal, uh, which uh, Abu Kamal, I, I, I don't think they were successful like Russians and uh, the Rush, the Syrian yeah. army uh, could take control. And Abu Kamal is that strategic city that connects uh, Iraq and to Syria, like through this major highway. So yeah. this is the... So this is the all of the distrust that that is is kind of characterizes all of the alliances that are happening now and breaking for that matter, because um, so like for example on October thirteenth and fourteenth the Syrian army made some kind of accommodation with the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces, the SDF being the coalition built more or less by the YPJG. Right. Um, so the SDF does have some Arabs. It's not no longer considered like a Kurdish only force, but right. everybody also understands that it's basically the YPGJ, right? right. Um, so, but there's been some kind of accommodation whereby um, instead of having Turkey occupy all the areas where the United States had been um, backing the SDF, the Syrian army and the Russians, you know, or the Syrian army moved in with support from the Russians. But then there have been part issues where the Syrian army was trying to take some strategic oil field or something, and then the, the SDF kind of refused to let them in, and they're, they've kind of come to blows in, in various places. Right. So, um, you know... How does this how does this fit? And like as an anti-imperialist, you know, there's there's anti-imperialists, I guess, that are very pro-Assad that are critical of the SDF for letting the U.S. in. And on the other hand, it's like, you know, um, they weren't uh, they did they weren't choosing the U.S. from a long list of potential allies that were that were able or in a position to help them out right. uh, when Kobani was happening, for example. So what do you, you know, what do you think of this? I mean, uh, maybe, yeah, it would be a good entry to our main discussion of uh, yeah. what imperialism is yeah. in today's uh, Middle East uh, 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 chaos. And as you said, it's not just Kurdistan. We have a lot of problems and... Uh, uh, people in the region have been saying that this is the third world war yeah. that nobody is talking about. Yeah. And uh, let's, uh, mm, like going back to your uh, uh, question of uh, what is the relationship between 
the SDF and uh, the Assad regime. Well, clearly, politically, the SDF has an alternative vision. They uh, they propose an, uh, a new democratic uh, uh, system uh, based on the autonomy of different communities. Mm-hmm. And based on many accounts, uh, it's, uh, it emphasizes on gender liberation, mm-hmm. on communal uh, democracy, on uh, preservation of uh, ecology, and uh, all of that that's coming from uh, Ojalan's paradigm of democratic confederalism. But... Uh, Ojalan being? Uh, uh, Abla- this Turkish, I mean, a Kurd, Kurdish leader from Turkey who's in from jail. Right? Yes, yeah. and in Raleigh prison for 20 years. Uh, he's the leader of the Kurdistan Workers' Party. Or the PKK. The PKK, right. Okay. So uh, the uh, SDF and uh, what we know as Rojava administration, they have never been hostile against Assad regime. Right. Uh, they explicitly say that in the, the next uh, uh, government of Syria should not include Assad. The, the mm. future of uh, Syria must be without Assad. But... Uh, to m- many of those, including myself, that have been to Rojava, we know that in Qamishlu, uh, the, which is kind of the fact the capital of the administration of northeastern Syria, uh, the As- Assad government still uh, has a very strong presence. And uh, in some parts of Hasake, they have uh, presence and they... Uh, the SDF, the Kurds, the YPG, uh, collaborated with Assad in, uh, in s- at some level in Aleppo. Yeah. And they, uh, the regime allows the YPG to control some parts of uh, uh, Aleppo. Right. So there uh, is a relationship. There is a relationship. there has been a relationship going back. And it's not entirely bad. Exactly. Yeah. But the thing is that after... The uh, collaboration between uh, the SDF and the American, uh, yeah. the coalition forces, let's say. Uh, I mean, uh, there was uh, a lot of different balances in the region. And uh, of course, I wouldn't say uh, that the Kurds uh, didn't want American support. Yeah. They, they are surrounded by uh, hostile enemies. But it's not like... Uh, like many anti-imperialists that you mentioned, yeah. their uh, imperialist boots uh, on the ground. Kurds, uh, they they had to defeat ISIS. Yeah. Uh, ISIS committed a lot of atrocities uh, against the uh, Kurdish population, especially in Shangal uh, against mm-hmm. Yazidis. And uh, this was the most fascistic group that, yeah. uh, that has been... Uh, in the modern history, I could say. Yeah. Uh, totally uh, genocidal. Totally yes. explicitly devoted to wiping minorities out. So enslaving people. If any anti-imperialist is against uh, <laughs> yeah. this to uh, collaborate with any army yeah. to defeat this group, I am sorry, but I need to call it out. And yeah. It's uh, bullshit. But yeah. So I don't think we are addressing that. But uh, uh, I think the Kurds... Uh, they wanted to collaborate with Assad and uh, with uh, uh, Russia to find an agreement, especially after the fall of Aleppo. Yeah. And in Afrin, the, their efforts uh, basically went uh, very unsuccessful. And uh, right now, and they have some parts of uh, south of Afrin that the Russian and 
and even the Iranian yeah. backed militias are kind of supporting uh, to keep it uh, to just like kind of have a safe place for displaced families right. Kurdish families from Africa. so what how what how big of a role did the Americans play in preventing a deal between Assad and the SDF in 2018? I think uh, this role was uh, very important, but uh, there is a lot of uh, uh, dynamics, different dynamics that yeah. are uh, happening. So we have uh, Russia and Turkey yeah. kind of they uh, have their own Putin and Erdogan having a bromance. Multi-hundred year dysfunctional relationship, right? I mean... And let's be yeah. honest, for for um, uh, for the United States, for NATO, and for uh, yeah. Russia, Kurds are just uh, yeah, a group of. They will never be as important. going to be as important as the relationship with Turkey. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Because Russia, for the first time, uh, has the opportunity to take a very important ally uh, away from NATO yeah. and uh, the United States to. Um, for whatever future plans they have for Iran, they need Turkey. Yeah. And for Syria, they need Turkey. It's tricky for Russia, though, because if it if trying to get Turkey as an ally means losing Syria as an ally, yeah. it's also a major credibility hit to have invested this much in maintaining Syria and then saying, well, you know what, Turkey's more important. Because yeah. that also affects their ability to make alliances in the future or That's maintain true. them. So yeah, it's it's a really it's a really tricky situation uh, in those terms. I I also I think we have to talk about um, another issue that's really um, really thorny for the the SDF or YPJG Kurdish you know the Kurdistan um, you know Kurdistan politics uh, and the pro Assad kind of anti imperialists that. It's not a big group. I'd say most imperialist, anti-imperialists like myself are totally neutral on Assad. I have no, yeah. I have no, uh, I'm not out Sympathy. here yeah, for, <laughs> for any particular, you know, regime. Uh, but um, the, the question of the demographics of northern Syria, because one, one thing that Erdogan, uh, the president of turkey has recently announced is that this safe buffer zone that they plan to create basically a turkish occupation zone of northern syria they want to send uh i guess mostly arab refugees back to right. syria and to to settle into those zones so this is like you know to early 20th century demographic engineering yeah. um which you thought has gone out of style but it turns yeah. out hasn't gone out of style and then um, on the other, on the kind of Assad side, they're arguing that, you know, the Kurds are, are also trying to expand their territory at the expense of traditional Arabs. And the Kurds also have argued, the Kurds of northern Syria have also argued that the Assad, especially the previous Assad regime, yeah. was trying to settle Arabs in the Kurdish regions. Yeah, the green zone, the, the green belt, sorry, yeah. Arab belt. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, it's really tragic uh, uh, century for the Kurds since uh, uh, Sykes-Picot agreement. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had uh, the severe agreement, which uh, uh, many people 
many historians said that it was a dead agreement when it was born mm. and uh, it was replaced uh, uh, by Lausanne agreement which gave the uh, today's sovereignty to the Turkish Republic mm. but uh, mm, I could say um, that we are all like as Kurdish people we are all victims of that uh, agreement the Lausanne agreement and uh, before that the Sykes-Pico and imperialist powers uh, uh, division of ter territory uh, in that region between uh, French and uh, British uh, imperialist powers and Kurds have been the, um, uh, have been victims of imperialist uh, games in the region for uh, for decades I mean uh, let's not forget that the first warplanes uh, were used against uh, the Kurds. There's a really famous Schleiman. quote by Winston Churchill where he says something like, I, I don't approve of poison gas except against certain tribes. And I'm pretty right. sure he was talking about the Kurds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, and the uh, uh, French did the same thing. And the way they, uh, and this, the very border that right now they... Uh, everyone in the world is talking about was drawn by uh, French and the British yeah. uh, politicians uh, intentionally dividing all the cities uh, between uh, on that border between uh, Turkey and Syria yeah. so Serikani is a city I'm planning I'm thinking about writing something about yeah. that it's a city in two countries with three names mm. uh, Kurdish name is Serikani the Arab uh, Arabic name is Rasul Ain. Uh, on the side of Turkey, it's called Jalan Pinar. Mm. Same with Nusaybin and Qamishlu. Mm. Same with, uh, uh, in less uh, lesser extent, uh, between uh, Kobani and uh, uh, Suruj. Same with uh, Tal Abyad and Akchakala. So there are all cities that have been divided this border just going through them yeah. and uh, the the seeds of today's uh, conflict was basically put in the place in uh, yeah. during Sykes-Pico agreement. I mean, uh, but, when we look I, at that, what? when we put this yeah. imperialism and anti-imperialism uh, discussions into perspective, uh, let's not yeah. forget this. Yeah. Let's not well, forget yeah. this I mean, background. I, it, the whole, the whole it's all an imperial construction. And there's a lot of continuity between what the British were doing and what the Americans are doing, even if the Americans are more, uh, I don't know, clumsy about it or something. Especially Trump. Right. Um, more, I don't know, British. But do you think it's just Trump? Like, I'm... I mean, some things. No, mm -hmm. mostly no. Mostly no. Like right. I'm not. I'm not a. I'm not a big. I mean, uh, any Republican, for example, would have been just as erratic and just as um, unpredictable and and just as, you know, br brutal. Um, Democrats, uh, you know, the whole this whole situation blew up under Obama, right? This whole the whole partition of Syria took place under Obama. Uh, the destruction of Libya took place under Obama. So it's not, there's not like some kind of benign foreign policy based on someone other than Trump or based on exactly. a party other than the Republican Party. Exactly. On the other hand, no, not on the other hand, on a completely different note, um, 
I wanted to mention like one of the reasons like we we're talking about imperialism and anti-imperialist politics, but there's also like leftists are really um, inspired by a lot of what uh, the Kurds in Rojava are doing and have done and what Ojalan like that whole politics is really sophisticated and it's like a response to the various things going on in the region that uh, is is principled and I just wonder you know I know you know a lot about this and you study this a lot like what is the what is their take on these demographic kind of debates and issues because I know that um, from o that Ojalan kind of politics is that we were not necessarily trying to carve out an independent nation state as much as to carve out kind of like autonomous administrations. So yeah. like, how does that fit with, for example, Turkey's uh, demographic engineering plans or Hafez Assad's uh, and the continuity with that? Yeah. Talking about this demographic uh, distortion, uh, Turkey has been doing it since yeah. uh, the very first day of the, the foundation of the Armenian genocide. Armenian genocide and then relocation of Greeks yeah. and uh, Assyrian genocide. And uh, that it's important. I think I just want to make a point for listeners, both of our listeners, that that's not something that is like a deviation of Turkish history in the sense that the current <laughs> Turkish government does not repudiate like no, it's Germany not. you know Germany massacred uh, Jews and gypsies and communists and and the and the German government today says we apologize for that we have a museum this is not who we are now you know we repudiate all of those things that the Nazis did but this government in Turkey today sees itself as a con 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 in continuity with uh, the Tur the same Turkish government that did all of these things yeah. in the last century with Dersim genocide and relocation of and uh, genocide and then expulsion uh, expulsion of uh, uh, tens of thousands of Kurdish uh, Alevites uh, from right. that area in 1930s uh, when Erdogan came to power uh, he apologized for that or and acknowledge this history and okay. it was it was uh, uh, people were very happy to see that uh, but at the same time critical because it was a completely uh, political uh, game to mm. um, to kind of approach the Kurds and uh, gain the Kurdish votes mm. uh, during elections and he was kind of uh, successful like for uh, early years of uh, his um, uh, his government uh, that started in two thousand two, he was successful to gain the Kurdish votes. But uh, as soon as he uh, established uh, and he consolidated his power uh, throughout uh, different institutions of the Turkish state mm -hmm. and uh, uh, changing this whole system to presidency and preparing the ground for that. He uh, he has been uh, like much more vicious and uh, genocidal uh, compared to any government before. Like right. even compared to the uh, military junta after 1980. Right. And um, my study is taking place in Diyarbakir, and in 2000, 
2015, when I was in Yarbakar, there was like a lot of neighborhood councils, a vibrant uh, mm. political society. People were very ho uh, hopeful. And during uh, June elections, when the HDP, mm. which is a leftist pro-Kurdish party in Turkey, gained 13% uh, of votes, the uh, majority government of the AKP uh, for the first time after uh, uh, like 14 years, 13 years, uh, uh, it was threatened. Their their uh, their authority, their power uh, was mm -hmm. threatened, and uh, the um, Turkish government, uh, uh, in the first hand, they ended the uh, peace negotiations with the PKK. Mm -hmm. And then they started this campaign of arresting and uh, uh, attacks against all sort of Kurdish and leftist uh, yeah. groups and gatherings and, and uh, two bombings. It was before academic. that. Oh, yeah. Before that, and there was uh, there were two bombings in Suruj and in yes. uh, Ankara that uh, ISIS. Uh, we know in sure. quotation marks claimed uh, responsibility but there are many evidence that uh, uh, the Turkish state was uh, was behind uh, these uh, uh, bombings and after that all the cities or I could say many uh, cities in the Kurdish region many neighborhoods districts uh, started this uh, self-government resistance uh, Kurdish youth built barricades and defended the, their uh, autonomous communities against the Turkish attacks. And the response from the Turkish government was devastating. Like yeah. Many, many cities were completely uh, leveled to the ground. Right. And uh, many, mm, many bodies of these youth militants were not uh, found. And uh, 500,000 people, according to Amnesty International and United Nations, uh, were displaced. So, so Turkey. This is, this is post 2015. This is we uh, to. Mm, so this self-government resistance started in the summer of 2015, yeah. and uh, the mm, the Turkish army's attacks against these cities uh, started immediately after that, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, until March 2016, they got control of many of these resisting cities and neighborhoods back, and. Uh, so this was all happening at the Before, same time as the the Syrian, I mean, the northern Syria is fighting ISIS, ISIS exactly. at the same time. Exactly. So Turkey uh, basically uh, practiced this genocidal campaign against uh, the Kurds in 2015 mm -hmm. and continued right now in Rojava. Well, this is another interesting uh, point like a big picture point because I actually saw someone tweeting about this trying to defend Erdogan and they said you know there's more Kurds in Turkey than in Syria so if Erdogan really wanted to uh, commit genocide against Kurds he would he could just do it at home and in fact um, historically uh, it's actually easier to commit genocide against foreign populations than it is to do it internally yeah, and uh, I really don't know what genocide is, and uh, maybe it's a very loaded term, and uh, sometimes uh, it just means like a complete well, massacre of people. Yeah, but I think of it as as a as a kind of a long term policy. So it's like 
I think of Israel's policy towards the Palestinians as genocidal. Exactly. They want to get rid of them. Yeah. You know, long term, their yeah. vision is that there's an Israel and there isn't any Palestinians. And I think, I think of Erdogan the same way. I think of, and unfortunately, I think there's a lot of, there's a big political tendency in Turkey that's genocidal towards the Kurds. Exactly. Is, you know, that is, we, long term, we imagine a Turkey I with mean, no Kurds. I uh... mean, how else can you talk about uh, destruction of uh, 20 cities, like neighborhoods, districts uh, in different uh, parts of the Kurdish region in, in Turkey? How can you explain arresting thousands of uh, activists, politicians, mayors, right. members of parliament? Salahaddin Demirtas, the co-chair yeah, yeah. of HDP, is still in jail. How can you explain displacing hundreds of thousands of people and how can you explain like in Jizra during the self-government resistance uh, there are like evidence and uh, reports about that that around 80 people were burned to death yeah. and they were like all civilians so you know there there's an there's an Israeli writer named Baruch Kimmerling who coined a term or yeah maybe he didn't coin the term but he used the term politicide he wrote a book called politicide and the idea was his argument was Ariel Sharon was mainly the subject of his of his discussion former prime minister of Israel and he said Sharon's agenda is politicide it's not necessarily genocide politicide meaning there's to destroy the Palestinians independent capacity to do politics so yeah. in other words they can be there they can be there but they, they're not going to have any representation. They're not going to have any any politics of their own. They're just going to have to participate on Israeli terms in the Israeli dispensation. And I think that could be another way of thinking about yeah. the Erdogan agenda yeah. for Turkey, but also for northern Syria. The, the question that I, you know, that I'm wondering about is like, is what's your sense of whether like, as of the 14th, there's been this, um, you know, as the Syrian army has moved in and there's been this deal, but like, and there's a ceasefire as of two days ago, potentially, yeah. supposedly. But like, what's the, how do you, do you think that the SDF and the Syrian army or the, you know, the Assad government regime um, will be able to patch things up <clears throat> long term? I think this ceasefire is very important uh, as long as it prevents the Turkish uh, army to uh, further massacre people and as of yesterday we heard uh, and even the Times actually today reported that uh, that the Turkish army used uh, uh, phosphor bombs like some sort of chemical bombs against uh, people and uh, so it is important uh, that some lives are saved mm -hmm. this is a very fragile ceasefire uh, but on the ground uh, my sense is that uh, it is Putin like Vladimir yeah. Putin and Russians that are deciding how this agreement this ceasefire will be yeah. uh, operationalized so in five days four or five days uh, from the ceasefire Erdogan is going to meet uh, uh, Putin mm -hmm. and uh, somebody said that uh, that this ceasefire this uh, sudden move by the American 
uh, government uh, to go to Turkey and make this decision and uh, uh, I heard that the SDF was uh, also involved in this whole process was uh, uh, like a very uh, uh, how to say uh, sophisticated uh, like very much panicked move oh, okay. by the, the, the United States um, when they heard that uh, the Kurds are uh, mm, kind of working with the Assad regime uh, with Russians so they don't want to lose the Kurds uh, right away it's uh, w if if I uh, should talk about the moronic moves from uh, Trump and what the rule of Trump is is uh, I could talk about his disregard to this uh, strategic foreign policy of uh, the United States in the region Right. So uh, when the Kurds went to Assad and some of the uh, uh, some of the uh, Assad's army troops came to Manbij and to uh, some of the areas where fighting are taking place in Kobani, I think the Americans kind of panicked that uh, they right. they're not gonna have anything to say in that region. Yeah. So it's totally fragile. I. I don't think this ceasefire is gonna last for a long time and even today there were like many reports uh, of uh, bombing of shelling and uh, it hasn't stopped so Trump tried to save his own uh, prestige Interests, yeah. and uh, see when when this all started in uh, just a, a week I don't know, a week and a half ago when Trump made that announcement and then when Turkey announced that they were going in, I actually thought this is really strange because the constraint on, as far as I could tell, the constraint was not really U the U.S. military presence. The constraint was always Russia and the, and the Syrian government in terms of how far Turkey would be allowed to go. And I, I didn't see that having changed. So I thought, isn't Erdogan just getting a little bit excited now? And and he's, I, I thought sooner or later, Russia's going to risk, because people said, why is Russia letting him do this? And I thought, I don't think Russia's going to let him do this. I think Russia, you know, always takes a few days to figure out what they're going to do right. and w find out what Erdogan's going to do. And it happened more or less the way I thought. I figured they would start moving into the places that Turkey couldn't get to quickly. Yeah. And then they would sort of say, okay, well, here we are. Now, what what did you, th you know, what are we going to do about this? I mean, it could also be possible that uh, Erdogan three days ago said there will be no ceasefire. We'll continue with our operation until... Uh, we are done with our uh, objectives. objectives so uh, it could it could be possible that Turkey is going to use this agreement to uh, uh, push Russia to do something in their negotiations with the Russians yeah. uh, that also never works Russia never get like Russia has not doesn't have a history in at least in the Syrian context of making rash kinds of decisions Whereas mm -hmm. the you know where the Americans do and Turkey does, right? So I just I just kept thinking. I think this is yet another case of Erdogan just getting a little bit carried away on mm -hmm. you know advice from people around him that are telling him he's the second coming of yeah, you know, <laughs> and and just thinking that you know kind of buying into his own mythology because. 
the the poly, the, the the setup right now hasn't really changed as far as i can tell mm-hmm. the kurds are not going anywhere like the sdf is not going anywhere they're not going to be able to be wiped out the russians are not going to allow them to be wiped out the americans once they realize like you said once they realize they've lost all, virtually all influence they're going to try to get back in there yeah um turkey's gonna find that it doesn't have the unlimited power over the situation that it thinks it does it's really uh hard to say anything that what's gonna happen in the next few days or even the next uh, few weeks atrocities are gonna happen exactly people are gonna die and they're gonna be the kurdish uh, uh, fighters and civilians and uh, uh, let's be honest that one of the uh reasons that turkey agreed to this fi- this uh, ceasefire uh, was not this kind of politics or this grand uh, yeah. strategies that we are not aware of on yeah. what's happening there was this very very harsh and uh, heroic resistance yeah, by the course. sdf in the cities and also uh, the uh, the level of international uh, support yeah. for this project and all of the sanctions around the world uh, they were like very very important i could uh, i have never seen such a pressure uh against turkey uh, in mm-hmm. in all of turkey's uh, turkish um, uh, genocidal campaigns in kurdistan yeah. like i mean in 2015 2016 yeah. uh hundreds of thousands of people were displaced like yeah. cities were literally raised and uh people were dying and they were burned in their uh, undergrounds uh, and i don't uh, i don't think that uh, turkey could continue with uh, its atrocities when there is pressure from outside the kurds are not going to lose they, they're not going to let the uh, rojava project to die yeah. they haven't escalated the uh, their war yeah. um, i mean i don't know what the pkk strategy is but i feel uh, they're still waiting for what how this international yeah. pressure is going to work out they have a lot of power they have a lot of sympathizers in inside turkey yeah. so if it is uh, a war of uh, like a total war yeah uh, and if there is an existential threat against rojava this is going to go beyond our imaginations yeah and turkey yeah. could totally commit the uh, uh, mass killing of people in civilians in the like some of the major settlements like Kamishlu, which yeah. is a city of six uh, six hundred thousand people yeah. in uh, kobani in in other cities in hasake uh, in derek which are kind of close to the, Kur- the uh, turkey syrian border so if we continue what um, my understanding is if we continue with this pressure on turkey turkey cannot uh, do or continue doing what they're doing right now and uh, what russia is gonna do i'm I'm really not sure i don't uh, have any trust in uh, russia to yeah yeah i mean none of these powers are motivated by the kinds of concerns that you or i are motivated by right and let's be honest until now 
uh, how many people have died in Syria? Yeah. 600,000, yeah. 700,000. Yeah. And millions of yeah. people have been displaced. Yeah. And the whole country has yeah. turned into rubble. Yeah. So if Rojava is going to become another yeah. part of Syria in that situation, I don't think Russia would care uh, right. what's going to happen. Right. And they just think about how... Uh, how to gain more uh, power and more control. Yeah, how I to guess, maintain their allies in power without losing, you know, the, losing the, like, you can you can lose a lot before you've lost the regime, right? Or before you've lost the war. And I mean, if you think about Russia's history, you know, if you think about Russia in World War II, and they won World War II, and 30 million plus Russians died, yeah. in that victory right so they're they're you know historically their way of thinking is pretty different from yeah. uh you know from a western you know a western history where it's like you know oh my god we lost three troops and yeah. you know yeah. <laughs> it's it's just a different it's a different set of it's a different set of variables that they work with right. and it's a different way of thinking but also uh so maybe back to our conversation about imperialism this is one of the things that uh, anti-imperialist discussions are kind of ignoring that uh, how would you uh, call the russian interventions in in syria in other parts of the world i mean if you follow a uh, uh, leninist way of uh, uh, defining what imperialism is of Russia and Chinese uh, uh, gaining power and mm. uh, control around the world probably is not compared to the yeah. American uh, way, but maybe yeah. we need to know the def definition. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I do. I, I do follow that. So I don't, I don't really think of Russia or Iran. You know, people made this argument early on in the Syrian civil war that, you know, if you're an anti-imperialist, you have to oppose what Russia and Iran are doing to hold uh, the Assad government up. Right. And I didn't, I didn't see it that way. I thought of, you know, if, if Syria were to fall and you were to get the Islamic state of Syria, uh, you know, and the successful genocide against the Kurds and the Alawis and everybody on the Shia, that would be a huge victory for imperialism. You know, that would be like, that's, you know, Libya or whatever, like these kind of devastated, no-go destroyed states. That's what it, imperialism, as imperialism goes around, it creates now. Or, you know, maybe not imperialism, maybe empire is a better term. So I don't really see Russia that way, but that doesn't mean, or China, but that doesn't mean that I think they're benign. Right. I mean, they're still states. They're still states and states are still constructions of ruling classes. And those ruling classes are interested in things other than democracy and socialism and equality. Uh, but again, like in, in the, like going back to Syria, I do think I, I continue to think that the worst case scenario is pretty much always what the empire is driving for. And usually the lesser evil is what the kind of alliance arrayed against the U.S. 
is going for. And the Kurds have always been a kind of a exception to that. Like you have to be a little bit more, that's where you have to be a little bit more sophisticated in my opinion, because here you have a situation where uh, they were fighting pretty much by themselves against the imperial proxy, which was the Islamic State. And then through this fairly strange and I think unique confluence of events, the Americans ended up bombing their own proxy, the Islamic State, on and using these, you know, the, this, these leftists <laughs> as, yeah. as their ground troops. Yeah. And that, you know, that wasn't supposed to happen. That wasn't anybody's plan. It wasn't the U.S.'s plan. wasn't Turkey's plan. wasn't the SD, you know, the YPGJ's plan. Yeah. But that's how it shook up. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't, if I could ha- run that back, I wouldn't have it, I wouldn't try to have them fight them without that air support. The David Graeber on uh, Twitter said something uh, really uh, funny and interesting that... Uh, Uh, that I bet somebody told Trump that these people are leftists yeah. <laughs> that we are supporting. Yeah, he, that must be what happened. Yeah. <laughs> that must be what happened. That must be what happened. And, uh, and then he just panicked. Yeah, he said, and he's been, he told uh, Nancy Pelosi during that uh, uh, mm. meeting that uh, uh, he uh, had a meltdown that you are supporting Kurds because they are communists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it could be. So, uh, I mean, uh, I, I don't think the, um, the American would care really uh, what the, the political project and, uh, of the Kurds are about. Uh, their political project is about... It only and matters if it threatens their interests. So at, if at some point there's some oil interest or some other resource interest... And the Kurds wanted had the power to administer it in some kind of socialistic way. The Americans wouldn't like that. I mean, that's what happens in Iraqi Kurdistan. Right? I mean, I, I I really have difficult times to explain what's happening in the Middle East region, with uh, with kind of I don't want to use this term, but it kind of traditional right. leftist right. way of explaining things like. Uh, Because they are leftists, they are socialists, and those are yeah. capitalists. Uh, this is what's happening, and that's uh, it's weird why they are uh, supporting the Kurds, and it's weird why the Kurds are ex- accepting uh, the yeah. American uh, support. And uh, maybe we can uh, end by talking about. What is really all of these wars are about? What, wh- where yeah. is it gonna go? Because I, my feeling is, uh, this is all the beginning of uh, an upcoming war. Like, mm. like we always tell each other, winter is coming, winter yeah, is coming. Yeah, yeah. But we never know when is the. Uh, maybe we are in in the uh, in the fall of <laughs> this winter. Yeah, you know, it could be. I I kind of think it's already on. So I don't really think there's, I, you know, I could eat these words, but I don't think there's any, like, I, I think if it just keeps going the way it's going, it's, it'll be pretty bad. It'll be bad enough. But I, the way I understand it is, you know, there's this, there's this impulse among the managers of empire to destroy every possible rival. 
And that's, you know, back in 2003, Rumsfeld used to talk about it in terms of full spectrum dominance, right? Okay. Like air, land, and sea, but also space and cyberspace <clears throat> and whatever. And so it's like a lot of what they're doing is, you know, and I actually think that the Syria war had a lot to do with Israel. Like the way it started was, you know, Hillary Clinton and, and the Democrats getting excited about the Arab Spring and saying, here's a chance to bring down a regime that's been really, you know, a problem for Israel. Mm -hmm. And they were pretty explicit about it, which is why it also boggled my mind that so many Palestine Solidarity people got on board with the uh, let's overthrow the Syrian government project. But anyway, um, so... That opportunity to destroy states that are creating problems for their allies, like that's kind of like this eternal goal. So Iran, you know, we're going to try to destroy Iran. We're always trying to undermine Russia. We're always trying to undermine China. We're always trying to do regime change in Venezuela and Cuba. And like anywhere in the world where they're not doing exactly what we want as the empire, well, we, we attack them. We try to undermine them. And there's always resistance because where people can resist, they will and they do. So that's kind of the, the dialectic that I okay. see playing out in the world. Okay. Yeah, I agree with you about the part of resistance. But uh, would you agree that on that part of resistance, we also have, uh, let's say explicitly, we have Russians and we have Chinese or becoming very powerful a uh, different uh, pull in all of that and uh, uh, David Harvey talks about uh, Chinese uh, uh, expansion around the world especially in uh, South Asia and he sees some alarming signs that uh, there might be in 20 years 15 20 years a clash between the American Empire and Chinese Empire. It could be, but I, I do think that there are also levels of integration that we don't necessarily see in terms of these powers too. Like, why, you know, it, like Russia's helpful to Syria in terms of staying afloat against the, you know, the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda, whatever, Saudis, which are ultimately backed by the states. But... Russia's always been very explicit that we're not going to help you against Israel. Like, you're on your own. If Israel bombs you or whatever, like, you're on your own. For the most part. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there are these... I, I, there's this documentary called The Lab that I always talk about. Um, it's about the Israeli arms industry. And it's got this scene where all the countries of the world are represented. But it's like all the countries of the world are at this Israeli arms fair. Like, Russia's there. China's there. India's there. Pakistan's there. Mm -hmm. Um Venezuela's there, and this was under Chavez. So it's like, there's there's levels of international cooperation and in certain industries pertaining specifically to things that are of interest to the empire, like arms and oil and grain, that, again, like, we think, oh, China and U.S. are rivals, or China and Russia are rivals, but they're cooperating on a lot of levels. And so I just... I guess I don't quite fear like a repeat of World War One and the, these inter-imperial rivalries like there used to be. Okay. I guess I think of it more, you know, a little bit more. I don't know 
if I'm 100% sold, but like William Robinson has this analysis of the transnational capitalist class, right? Mm -hmm. Like the idea that there's this kind of integrated ruling elite and they just play by different rules than the rest of us. And for the most part, we don't even know what those, what those rules are. But they hang out with each other. They fly in, in private jets and, you know, <laughs> do all kinds of things together. Right, but uh, I still uh, think that the, there are uh, serious clashes of interests between mm. all of these different parties. I mean, uh, things probably uh, are uh, not as bad as what's happening in the border of the Turkey and Syria yeah. and what, the Turk, uh, what Turks are doing to the Kurds. Yeah. But uh, my feeling is, uh, yes, today Kurds are dying. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think uh, this is going to stop there. This is not going to yeah. stop in Rojava. And Iran is preparing yeah. and Saudi is preparing. And Russia is doing uh, uh, their own game. And things in Turkey, inside Turkey, are, n are not really that stable. Yeah. Uh, Erdogan is not in uh, that powerful yeah. Uh, yeah. State uh, and there's a lot of tension between pro-Russian and pro-American groups inside uh, Turkey. Yeah. So uh, everything is about to explode. Yeah. But uh, uh, I totally agree that in with some level of integration, some level of uh, cooperation between all of these different uh, um, um, powerful uh, blocks, countries, yeah. blocks and bodies, they're kind of preventing. Mm -hmm. what is about to come yeah but i mean you know i think of their unity of that ruling elite as being kind of an alliance against us and maybe like the last thing we'll say for now is you know all of this kind of discussion points to the importance of you know what we lost probably five or six years ago or maybe ten which is like a really powerful anti-imperialist and anti-war block in the West right. among the common people, right. uh, which, you know, we were moving towards in the early part of this century, um, you know, the 20, you know, the beginning of the 2000s. And, uh, and we did lo lose it and we lost a lot of it over the Syrian civil war. So it kind of comes back to that and we've got to get it back. Yeah. And maybe w very last question, uh, mm -hmm. Justin. Do you think anti-imperialists and uh, the situation that Rojava is right now experiencing should continue to pressure the United States to uh, support the Kurds? And what would be a pragmatic, I'm not going to talk yeah. about political or ideological stance, what I, would be a pragmatic anti-imperialist stance today? My feeling is that, that there is incredible leverage that the U.S. could exert on Turkey mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't necessarily involve militarily supporting the, the Kurds. Like they could, there's a million ways they can just tell Turkey, cut, call it off. You know, yeah. they could threaten war crimes trials against Turkish generals. They could say, you know, you can't come to, you can't come to our parties anymore. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that are that are done every single day to maintain Turkey as a respectable part of the international order. Right. And I think, you know, I actually think that would be, we should probably have another discussion about that, uh, about how we can, to what extent, you know, movements can attack that uh, 
as a as a way of trying to create some leverage here all right thank, thank you. you thank, thank you, you very much thank you and uh, i was in conversation with uh, justin porter uh and i hope to have another session in yeah, march uh yeah uh calmer and uh yeah let's <laughs> do that better time actually we may let's do that soon because maybe we should talk about like what can be done as activists about about this question yeah okay okay thank Cheers. you in the last two weeks we have seen an incredible show of solidarity with the kurdish movement from all around the world on behalf of my uh, fellow kurdish citizens I would like to express my gratitude and appreciation to anyone that supported the Kurdish uh, movement in these difficult times. And for the uh, end of this episode, I would like to share a track that two Irish solidarity activists uh, sang for Rojava, and it's an adaptation of the famous Irish anthem uh, titled Go On Home British Soldiers. Listen to Go On Home Turkish Soldiers. soldiers go on home Have you got no fucking homes on your own? For the 40 years we fought you with our fears May you fight you a few hundred more If you stay Turkish soldiers If you stay you never ever beat the gap again Cause the friends in Rasaline will kill your bloody swines. So take a tip and leave us where we be. Go on home, Turkish soldiers, go on home. Have you got no fucking homes of your own? For the 40 years, we fought you with our fears. And we fight you a few hundred more We're not Turks, nor jihadis, we're no Yankees We're apogee, and proud we are to be So fuck your Trump and Pence, we love our self-defense We want to see Rojava free again Go on home, Turkish soldiers, go on home. Have you got no fucking homes of your own?